This is a Wild Gate Production Podcast. My name is David Chanel, one of the co-writers of Castles and Crusades, the role-playing game, King of the Road, man of means by no means. Aliyah the S, the die is cast. Let us converse, people. Let us converse. <laughs> okay, Crusaders, it's time for the eighth episode of the Crusader Podcast. We're excited to have you tonight. I'm your host, Jesse, and sitting to my left is... Tyler Moe, Red 5, standing by. And to my right, I have... Gold Leader Squadron 6745, uh, Carl Heil. I don't know Star Wars very well, sorry. What? I really don't. <laughs> I'm not a huge Star Wars fan, unfortunately. Oh, uh, get him off. Uh, do you like Indiana Jones? <laughs> no, not particularly. Oh, whoa, we, we've got to stop now. <laughs> Man, I feel swords, like I don't know you. Swords and elves. Star Trek? Swords Star and Trek? elves. No, not Star Trek either. I I, I am dyed in the wool. I want I want magic. I want wizards with pointy hats. I want sword swinging swords and elves. That's my genre. Oh, and you need to broaden your horizons. And zombies. Okay. <laughs> I like swords, elves, and zombies. I had to get the Star Trek II Wrath of Khan Kirk Primal screaming there. <laughs> Call! <laughs> I know a lot about Star Trek and Star Wars through osmosis, just being around people who are deeply, deeply invested in it. But it is I've not even I've not even seen all the Star Wars movies. Like I have seen five Star Wars movies out of the nine or so that have come out. If you're really tuning into the Crusader podcast tonight, you're here for our special segment eventually. Uh, regarding house rules. <laughs> but first, let's go into the front lines where we talk about what we've been doing recently in gaming. Um, Tyler, what have you been up to? Not much. Uh, my friend's transmission has uh, been out of whack on his vehicle, so that kind of sidelined us and some other things going on. So presently, we're stuck in limbo with one of those uh, encounters from a, a PDF that Davis Chenault, uh, one of the co-creators of CNC, wrote. One of those old dollar PDFs. What is it? Roadside Encounters. And I used a little bit of that after we played through Shadows of Halfling Hall, and I think we were uh, battling uh, some zombies at the time. One of our party was down, but that's that's been at least a, a good month ago, so that's kind of the latest, and I'm just working on those uh, sessions for GaryCon upcoming. Okay, well, hopefully uh, your buddy's car gets fixed, and you'll be back to gaming soon. That's right. On my side, uh, we just finished up our Mutant Crawl Classics campaign that we had been playing for a while at the game store. The DM there is going to start running Gamma World next, which I'm excited. I haven't actually played that game before, so I'm happy to jump on with that. The game that I'm running at the store is going pretty well. We just finished the module, The Forge of Fury, which is a third edition module. Um, It's really great, though. I love it. And my home group just started The Isle of Dread. And I don't want people to think I'm a killer DM because I talked before about people dying. But one of the characters just got eaten by a T-Rex within uh, an hour of landing on one of the islands. So that's going rough, but I think it's going to be exciting. You're playing that with CNC rules, right? Yep, yep. Fury's great. That in uh, Sunless Citadel for back in the uh, third edition of the fantasy game. That's, that's yeah. solid stuff. And, of course, Isle of Dread, what else can you say? Right. And the Forge of Fury, that translated over to CNC fine. And Isle of Dread is, is going well. So far with the conversion, it's it's on the fly. Um, a T-Rex is tough for level three characters no matter what. <laughs> hmm. So, Carl, what about you? 
Recently, I started a homeschool gaming group. I am a stay-at-home homeschooling dad. Uh, and so I watch my two kids and I do their schoolwork with them. And uh, we have a local a game store that had a uh, gaming group for homeschoolers. And I have uh, essentially uh, taken that and made it weekly. And every week we've gotten together and played board games. Well, recently... I introduced them to role-playing games, and we played some RPGs up there. And it's slowly but surely uh, morphed into essentially homeschool RPG club, which is fantastic <laughs> for me. You know, uh, I would much rather be playing uh, uh, an RPG than playing um, shoots and ladders. <laughs> uh, introduced a kid to RPGs. A week later, at the next meetup, he came in with a bunch of hand-drawn dungeons that he had gone home and made up himself and wrote notes and invented monsters. And I was like, well, this kid is... He's got it. <laughs> he has got yeah. it. That's awesome. I you love gotta, it. You got to keep uh, keep him in that. He's got an F-plus in science, but he's got an A in dungeon <laughs> mapping. And uh, my other news in uh, gaming is my wife and I are going to make it to GaryCon this year. So we're very, very excited about that um, and hope to see uh, some of our listeners and uh, uh, see Jesse and Tyler at uh, GaryCon. I guess, you know, I mean, we, the truth is we can't stand to hang out with each other anywhere else except this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> no, now, not, now that I've brought up the Star Wars thing, they may shun me. <laughs> no, Jesse's okay, but Carl, I don't know, man. We'll have to see. You, you know, I'll, I'll try and fit you in my schedule between autographs, working the booth, and uh, working in the industry at Gary Con. I'll see if I can squeeze you in, Heil. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of Gary Con, you know, we, we definitely have some uh, good games coming up on the troll front. I, kn I know, for example, I'll be running an old second edition adventure that I uh, wrote. I'm not sure how great it is, but uh, uh, ra uh, what, yeah, Raid on Etten Ridge. I, I wrote that back maybe in 1996 and ran it for second edition two or three times. And running one of Jason Vay's uh, print and PDF adventures. It's technically a part of a trilogy, the uh, Nightmare Children, which is for Amazing Adventures. And it's kind of got that pulp yet uh, Cthulhu-type feel to it as well. That's going to be a good one. And uh, the other game is going to be The Nights Before Christmas, which is uh, the uh, Victorious Adventure written by Mike Stewart for the uh, Victorious RPG. Unfortunately, all, all my games are full. But for those that may be attending Gary Khan, uh, we'll get the full list out there here pretty soon. But uh, there are some openings left in some other games, but some did fill up quickly. Yeah, I'm playing in the Martins uh, uh, CNC game, which sounds like a really cool concept. If I if I understand it the way I think I understand it, it sounds like a really cool concept. They're great people and longtime troll supporters, uh, Jen and her husband. We, we're glad to have them helping us out, as, as always. I also have three games I'm running. Uh, they are sold out, but if anybody shows up, I'll try to cram you in, if, if at all possible. But I'm running Assault on Blacktooth Ridge, uh, Keep on the Borderlands, and then an adventure of my own writing, A Dead God Dreaming. And I'll be running all three of those with Castles and Crusades. All right, so our next segment is Troll Mail. Unfortunately, nobody has sent us an email. Nobody has sent us a text message. Nobody has sent us a voicemail. So uh, you guys got to work on that and get us some stuff in here because we're running out of ideas. <laughs> <laughs> oh, surely not. 
No, but I mean, it, it is it is just fantastic to hear from you guys. So uh, please uh, feel free to email us anything and everything. Uh, it's just great to hear from our listeners. And we are getting quite a bit of feedback. You know, sometimes I'll uh, message people on my friends list and kind of send them out kind of personalized message, you know, about the uh, the next show or installment upcoming. And we, we've gotten some good comments on our uh, past installment with co-creator Davis Chenault. I had several people tell us they really enjoyed that interview. And uh, I knew it was going to be a zany and entertaining and, and of course, informative interview with Davis. You, you never know what to expect from him and, and, and what a great time that was. All right. Well, let's just go right into the prime topic. Um, tonight, we're going to be talking about house rules. Every group has them. Uh, people love to talk about them. A game that's as customizable as CNC can be tweaked in many different ways to, to really play the game that you want to play. So tonight we're going to go over some house rules that you guys uh, commented on the Facebook group in and also our own house rules. We've got one here from uh, Abraham Frank uh, from the uh, Facebook group for uh, Castles and Crusades uh, discussion. And uh, I guess he's just started teaching family members to play as a wife, sister or husband and their four kids. And he has some younger players. So he says he uses D6 hit dice instead of D4 for illusionists and wizards and start at max plus con bonus for hit points. I guess to make combat a, a little less likely to do a, uh, a TPK right out of the uh, gate and uh, character creation they did in the last session and they're uh, hoping to equip characters and run their first adventure and whatnot. And I've kind of talked about that a little bit with people. Sometimes, you, if especially if you have people coming to Castles and Crusades from let's say uh, 3.75, or as uh, Carl calls it, the uh, uh, Ford Explorer RPG, <laughs> or, or some of those where, and that was the first one where I think they did introduce the D6 hit die for the wizard and the illusionist. I, I'm i a little foggy on that, but you know they kind of beefed up the uh, first level characters there right out of the gate. And and, and I think you can do that with CNC. I, I thought this was a good suggestion from from Frank, I don't know. I, I haven't used it presently, and I've thought about it. Any thoughts on that, guys? I don't think it's bad at all. Uh, giving them a couple extra hit points to make them a little bit tougher starting out, especially for uh, newbies and, and kids and stuff. It's uh, You don't want to hold their hand too much, but you also want them to have fun. And, and you, if you got a wizard with two hit points and he dies and you're on your third wizard and you're 10 years old, it might not be so much fun. So uh, one thing I would consider with the hit dice, and I mean, I, I I used to do that. I used to do max hit points at first level or or a lot of rules like that. Uh, re-roll ones and twos is a, a popular one for mitigating the amount of hit points a character has. Uh, one thing I've considered, because it would involve less re-rolling and give a little bit more of a constant, and, and it, would, it would affect uh, fighting classes more than it would affect magic using classes is possibly uh base everybody on a d4 and then generate the rest of the hit points through bonuses so a wizard class may be simply a d4 where a fighter class would be a d4 plus six so a fighter would always end up with the higher level of hit points um because they are the fighting class they're going to be on the front lines i don't think any of that really changes the game you know it doesn't make it unfair because it's mathematically possible for the fighter to roll high hit points every single level it's mathematically possible for the magic user to roll a four every time they roll hit points unlikely but mathematically possible so i don't think it as long as you're not adding um 
hit points on top of hit points on top of hit points, I don't think you're going to unbalance it too much to to be too concerned with tweaks there. Yeah, it doesn't bother me. That being said, I would kill a kid's character, though. <laughs> My son died in our uh, gaming get-together the other day. <laughs> his, uh, his wizard got, got killed by goblins. I'm like, sorry, bud. Happens. <laughs> okay, our next message is from Ed Miller. He says, I alter encumbrance rules. One, I am happy to hand wave it as long as the players don't get stupid and what they are carrying gets out of hand. And he says, but for a general rule of thumb, I have the characters get their basic equipment loadout. This can include armor, weapons, etc. Whatever they use in their day-to-day for their class. This is then set to the zero encumbrance. The idea being that they have trained with this equipment and thus would be far less hindered with it than someone who is not. Also leaning into the fact that the character should be heroic and thus above average. And then I start the encumbrance from there. I think that's the main thing that people house roll in almost any fantasy game is the encumbrance. Um, And like Ed said at first, like he'll hand wave it as long as it's reasonable. I do the same thing. Honestly, it's like if if you're not carrying an unrealistic, in quotations, amount of equipment, I really don't care. You know, you're not going to carry out the uh, uh, 2,000, 4,000 pounds uh, gold statue of a demon lord or anything like that. That won't happen. But if you're carrying four swords with you, I I don't really care that much. I do like his idea, though, to setting the the encumbrance at their equipment. Um, and that makes sense to me. Like he says, they're using that stuff all the time. They're training with it. Their body is conditioned for it. And then start counting encumbrance after that. I like that house rule. I guess I kind of play it mostly by the book, but I could see where that would work. Uh, and sometimes if you go too far with playing with the rules as written or, or become too much of, I guess, as they say, an encumbrance Nazi, that can, that can take away from the game. You, you don't want it to get into too much bookkeeping and uh, too much detail. But on the other hand, like you said, the, the statue of the Demon Lord, you know, you got, you got to draw the line somewhere. Or, well, look at all these uh, 3,000 gold coins or copper coins or silver or whatever. You know, there, ha- there has to be a bit of a limit there. But, you know, once again, that's that's up to the individual GM. But, yeah, I don't I don't think it's a half-bad idea at all. Anything that speeds up play, uh, keeps things flowing, and, and, and things uh, just fun and action-filled and not bogged down in those sorts of things, you know, it's, it's not a bad thing at all. Well, this is actually something that um, the Adventures backpack changed my mind on. I, I was completely hand waving equipment entirely, but I um, when I was reading the Adventures backpack, man, I just loved the idea of knowing exactly where your stuff is and how much that would actually affect gameplay. Um, not now that doesn't necessarily. Um, keep you from doing this encumbrance rule, but it totally changed my mind on how to handle that. Whereas before I would just not care at all. You know, you're just okay, there's your stuff. Who cares how much it is or, 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 uh, uh, kind of what Jesse was saying, as long as you weren't trying to carry out the golden statue, you know, then I don't really care what you have. Um, uh, but yeah, uh, reading the adventures backpack really changed my mind on that. I think it would be really interesting and really change the way the game plays to, um, focus on that and have that information uh, readily available. They even had the, uh, as I recall, the challenge level kind of added on for quick release mechanisms on uh, at least some of the expert backpacks in the adventurer's backpack, as I recall. 
they kind of added that that element to it and and then kind of okay here's where you would have this on the outside of your backpack or obviously there would be the things in the inside of your backpack and i try to handle that halfway reasonably where maybe if something's down in the pack okay you're gonna have to get this thing off your back if you're in the middle of combat and everybody else is fighting and you're trying to do something and if it's in the pack this is going to take a round or so to dig through there you know and and of course people can kind of play that as they as they see fit but I, you know, I try to keep it halfway real, but yeah, I could see where people want a house rule quite a bit with encumbrance. That's, that always seems to be a common one from those who go buy the book or, 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 or completely hand wave it to somewhere in between. And I don't have it right in front of me, but there is that troll Lord games, uh, encumbrance video. Perhaps we can find that later on YouTube where the guys, uh, Mark Sandy, <laughs> they, they load him full of armor. They put on a helmet. Uh, they put on a shield and a backpack and a treasure chest in his hand. You see them all weighted down there in the Troll Lord Games headquarters. And then you see them outside. Maybe it's Davis who's got all the stuff on later on. And he's trying to charge up this hillside, you know, and he's got a sword in hand. And it, it's rather amusing, too, but it, 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 it kind of gives you another perspective if you can check that out on YouTube. Uh, video that Steven and Davis and uh, Mark Sandy with Trollord Games did. If you're looking for further, uh, you know, thoughts and, and ideas about encumbrance and just how easy it isn't to carry all that stuff around if you want to get that real about it. So I'm a little bit confused by uh, Joshua Garlock's comment. He said, turned undead will fight back if backed into a corner or are under missile fire. Uh, he said, though they'll be cowering, negative two to attacks. I thought that was just the rule. Don't turn undead, fight back if you try to attack them. I, I thought that's just the way turn undead works. I don't know how it's actually written, but I always thought they would try to flee by whatever means possible. So to me, that always meant if you had them in a the corner, they would fight to get through you and then try to run away. I don't have my player's handbook in front of me, but I thought if they were in a corner cowering, everybody else could attack the uh, creature. But if the cleric approached them, who uh, uh, essentially uh, turn undead, then uh, it becomes a problem. I, I, I think you're right on the off. money. I think that's exactly right, Tyler. I think that's, that's a rare moment. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> now, that's one of the easy ones, but uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what? That's a rare moment that I have something right about CNC. By the way, here's the release dates of every single book that's ever come out and who worked on it. <laughs> As long as it's not the rules, and I know you know the names of the books, yeah, then maybe maybe I know a bit. Yeah, <laughs> it's select knowledge, but yeah, I happen to pull a rule out and may, maybe got it right. <laughs> if we didn't, you can uh, get in touch with us at the Crusader it, Podcast. If 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 we didn't, this episode's about house rules, so we did. <laughs> right. you, you can't be wrong in this episode. <laughs> Another house rule that I hear from time to time, and I remember it being used once. In a uh, campaign I was in briefly, I was uh, playing a long-distance game with some folks. I was on the cell phone. Everybody else is sitting at the game table there in Springfield, uh, Missouri, playing the Lost City of Gaxmore. And I remember with regard to healing, in Castles and Crusades as written, you know, let's say if you're, well, we know that negative 10 is dead. And we know that negative 7 to 9 is kind of that, uh-oh, things are getting kind of bad for you area. And then 1 to 6 Negative one to six isn't so bad, but it, as written in Castles and Crusades, um, let's say you're at negative three and uh, the cleric comes up and he casts Cure Light Wounds, rolls the D8, 
and let's say he gets a five, you know, and here you are at negative three. Well, that would, you'd think, oh, that's going to put me back up to two. But as written in Castles and Crusades, it only gets you back up to zero. This particular uh, castle keeper and a few others probably out there as well, I'm sure, have probably done the healing where it heals you back up in this example to a two hit points as opposed to just stopping at zero and then having. What do you guys think about that one? That does give the cleric a little more power. Yeah, I think that's the logical um, conclusion most people would reach just because the math works out. So I think that's the expectation that would have been set by just the conversation at the table. I'm at negative two hit points. Oh, I healed you for four hit points. Oh, well, then I should be at two hit points because math. Um, so um, I think not only does that help the cleric um, uh, and help the party, but it it just it follows a logical consistency that the your players will automatically expect to be there. I run it that way. I run it that way also. I don't think it's a bad thing. I guess I've still always stuck with the well. You're up to zero, and then you can try and heal again. You know, if you have another spell or whatever the uh, case may be. Uh, I've I've kind of gone that way, but I, I don't see a problem with. It. I think it's good either way, depending upon how deadly a game you want or how how easy you want to make it for the players to survive. Regarding healing, I, I can think back to the last year or so, may, maybe in the last two years, where Stephen Chenault had posted maybe on the Castles and Crusades Facebook page, uh, and I don't know, maybe this is going to make it into the eighth printing of the Player's Handbook. I've got to check with him to see if that's still going in there. He had ruled or house ruled online that first aid, for example, because new players always think, oh, first aid, that's going to heal me. or that's No, that just bandages, you know, essentially – Bleeding wounds or th- those kind of injuries st- stops further damage from uh, from occurring. But Stephen ruled where if you wanted to not do that, but r- uh, say that I want to use it instead to heal one hit point. Either or. And I think it may eventually become an official uh, spell rule uh, for first aid in the eighth printing. Don't quote me on that, though. Yeah, I think that's another thing that just meets players' expectations. I've certainly had plenty of players look at that spell and assume it's a healing spell as opposed to a stabilization spell. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a fine thing to add to the game. I don't think it breaks anything. I run that one. Rules is written. I don't really have anything against it. I just think that it um, having somebody spend an action to stabilize another person kind of... Uh, makes it a serious situation, you know? Um, Because if they're doing first aid, they're probably out of healing spells or close to it. Um, So that's how I've always run it. Like, it it adds a little bit more tension to every time that I've seen it used. That's a nice little addition if you're a softer castle keeper and you want that option to trade out that spell for one point of healing. Not a big deal, and maybe it'll be an official rule at some point. Maybe it won't. But uh, either way, it's something you can maybe use in your game – as far as the uh, healing is concerned. One, uh, while we're on the subject of healing spills, one house rule I really like, and it comes from the most ridiculous place, but one house rule I really like is healing spells damaging undead. And that's something we used to do growing up, uh, have healing spells uh, hurt or harm undead creatures. And it be- makes the cleric have a ton of offensive magic as long as they were uh, fighting undead creatures. Um, and it and it all, the whole thing stems from an old TSR VHS uh, for the game Dragon Strike. <laughs> 
when they when they the cleric destroys some undead creature and they said you destroyed the undead and he said i healed him to heal the undead is to destroy them and we were just like dope (laughs) (laughs) it's a great line we did that as kids too um now i don't ever offer it up but if people stumble upon it and they're like well what if i cast healing on the zombie or whatever i'll let them do it so if you're uh, going to be at Gary Con at one of Jesse's games. <laughs> oh, <laughs> um, what about natural healing? What do you guys, the, the rule in the book is that you heal one hit point um, per day of, of full rest. And then after a certain time, you add like one hit point, I think, plus your con modifier. And it, it goes up depending on how many days you're resting. Um, my house rule is they heal one hit point per day plus their constitution modifier. I just throw that in there. What do you guys do? I would probably do one hit point per level just so it scales Ah, as they progress and it fits within the whole conceit of the uh, siege mechanics. That's a good idea. Generally, I guess we've been pretty lucky in in the local game where maybe there was some sort of healing or, you know, maybe somebody wasn't too far down. We had some people get near death where I really haven't had to give that one much thought lately. I'm, I'm kind of stumped on that one. I, I generally, I play rules as written. So I assume that's probably what I would do. Well, so here's my whole theory on this. Uh, the more trouble you make it to naturally heal, the more you might as well just take it out of your game. Because if it's this huge ordeal to have, I mean, you have to wait, weeks or months to naturally heal within this town, then they're just going to seek out magical healing every time. Uh, you know, they're going to go to a temple and try to get healed there, if at all possible. Uh, you know, or the cleric's going to rest three nights and gain healing spells. So I guess it, to me, it just, to make it really difficult to heal naturally is really just setting yourself up to ignore it completely. I like your adding the levels. That does give them a boost, obviously, every time they level up. And I think that's good. Outside of the healing realm, uh, another thing that might come up from time to time, and perhaps we've alluded to this, I think, perhaps when we spoke with Matt Golden a while back, another of the uh, Castles and Crusades co-creators, was about adding level into an ability check if it's not something allowed for by your class. I mean, the rules as written, you're not supposed to have a particular character class. A fighter use something that is uh, a part of the abilities or the ranger and vice versa and so and so forth. But I think sometimes, especially if your party is deficient, maybe uh, you don't have a ranger. Maybe you've got a druid. You could make all sorts of cases, how, however easy or uh, more uh, discerning you want to be about this as far as, well, you've got a druid. I think they could track, for example, or you could maybe allow other classes to do it. Uh, they do suggest in the rules that if you're going to allow a class to use something, that's not one of the normal class abilities to uh, not add their level in. And I generally have used that. I try not to abuse it too much, but especially sometimes with things like tracking, uh, a few other abilities, I guess it's just one of those case-by-case situations for me. What do you What do you guys think? I think you're right on the money with it being case-by-case and that it's really something that you have to determine for the table you're at while you're at that table. And it may be a different answer next time because the party construction is different or the player base is different or the game style is different. But uh, it's one of those things where if this is going to impede fun, then fun is clearly the goal of why we sat down. And, you know, fun isn't always automatic success. Fun is a challenge. But if it's going to just grind everything to a halt because somebody can't 
track the bandit, then you can just say the bandit is so sloppy at running that they leave these giant footprints and they're easy to track or whatever and allow the fighter to have an opportunity to do it. I, I think it's just a situation that you and it's really the, the reason to have house rules in the first place. And this is more, I guess, on the f- fly rulings as opposed to a set house rule but determine what's going to work for that table in that situation and 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 use what works if it really bothers a a castle keeper to do that you could even say if you want to be uh sort of tough about it you could add some uh uh, some amount to the challenge level to make it a little harder since well since it's not part of your class abilities i'm going to add a another plus five or whatever to it or, 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 or 10 to the challenge level to make it a little more difficult for that, uh, that particular character class to succeed if they're trying to track when they can't actually track like the ranger. So there, there's all, there are all sorts of ways you could do that, I suppose. Yeah. See, in, in your situation, Carl, I, I wouldn't even consider that tracking, right? Like right. that's not tracking to follow sloppy footprints through the woods, right? But that's so, adjusting the narrative to allow yes. for it. Yes. So I, I wouldn't even like if, if the player said, well, can I try to track? You don't got to track, you know, like I, I would even I would frame it just like that. Same thing like with uh, I would let a ranger uh, bandage a wound too, to keep somebody stable. I would let them do that. You know, I, I think like you said, it's it's depends on the situations. I, what I wouldn't let them do is like a like we talked about in the previous episode, like a a real class ability. So one of my other house rules is, I mean, a lot of us play a bunch of different games. One thing that I've added to my CNC game I took from DCC, Dungeon Crawl Classics, and that's the luck ability score. Um, I have my characters just pencil that in underneath the other normal scores, and that's just 3D6. Um, Whatever you roll, that's what you get. And I'll use that for things that come up that, as a castle keeper, I either haven't had prepared or wouldn't have thought about. Uh, an example I would use is like if they were in like a, a blacksmith's place, you know, and they're like, well, is there a chain there? I would have them make a luck check where they they roll their D20 and they try to get under that luck score. Little things like that. Nothing that would be like game changing, uh, but something that would, it gives them a little bit control of the game and it gives just pure chance a little bit in the game mm. too. And it's cool because it, it surprises me and it could surprise them and it, and it uh, rewards them for thinking outside the box too. They'll come up with a little idea and it's like, you know, I don't know, make a luck check. See if the see, odds are in your favor. So here's the thing, Jesse, I have always hated luck stats. I don't like the concept of a stat for luck because the dice are luck. The whole metric that this game is measured by uh, is luck. It's chance. These dice represent luck. We don't need a stat to calculate that but i've never heard it described exactly in the way you did like just oh you you're lucky that there is this item you were looking for there for some reason that makes sense to me like i think i might be changing my mind on luck stats i kind of like that is that how it is in dcc is that a thing or is it kind of your own i've always run it i like it like um see i thought you burned luck and and you modified dice rolls I don't transfer that over to CNC. Okay. That, it's just a, a, a static number. And I use a, another thing recently is like somebody, they were trying to barricade a door and they're like, well, does the door open in or out? And mm. I was like, well, I don't really have a reason for to open either way. You know, when I designed the dungeon, I didn't say this door opens in right. or out. So I was like, well, make a luck check. See, right? I like that too. 
Huh? It's, you're really uh, turning wow. you're turning me around on this whole thing, Jesse. Sometimes <laughs> I'll, I'll even use it for random encounters. You know, if there's if they're when they do their watches, you know, I will sometimes have them roll a luck check if there's monsters in the vicinity, you know, <laughs> or if they have seen monsters and they they're trying to be quiet and stuff, and you know, I might use it in that situation too. You know, when we're talking about things like luck, uh, and we won't go into a deep deep dive on this, but if you're looking for some other options in a game that is 100% compatible with Castles and Crusades, it would be Jason Vey's Amazing Adventures, which has things like fate points. And, and there are all sorts of mechanics and character backgrounds. And, and you could even take things like medicine, and you could trade out one of your class abilities as you can in Amazing Adventures, the pulp and action adventure game from Troll Lord Games. And that gives you an option to uh, take things from Amazing Adventures. And there's a lot of good stuff that you can mine from that book, even if pulp's not your thing, and I can't understand why it wouldn't be. Uh, but there's a lot of good stuff that you could lift and take directly over to Castles and Crusades 100%. And, and uh, like I said, the fate points are among just some of the things you can do, uh, even if you wanted to do the exploding die rolls and that sort of thing. But that's that's just another option. But, of course, as far as homebrew rules go, uh, one that's been around for a long time, and you're likely to hear a million different examples, I know that some of them are in the Castle Keeper's Guide, would be the rolling of attributes. And I think both of you guys have kind of discussed it briefly on how you did that, or I think once, Carl, you asked Jesse to say what, what kind of method he uses uh, for, for rolling. I kind of use that 4D6, roll 4D6, subtract the lowest one. Everybody knows that one. But sometimes, depending upon what stats – the uh, person gets, I, I, especially when you're playing at lower levels and whatnot, not starting out with a really powerful character. I kind of like to give uh, characters or players rather a playable character, unless unless you're purposely starting them off as some uh, you know fisherman or whatever, or some guy who's a cook or whatever. And I, I like to make sure they have a playable character because old school gaming, D and D type fantasy games, and even Castles and Crusades, as written, kind of is that that tough road, roll a, a hit die at the beginning and, and all of this. But I do that uh, roll D6, subtract your lowest, but sometimes I will let them roll two sets of stats. Not every time. If they do pretty well, I'm not trying to get a, a player to have a character with all 18s. That's not my goal. If it works out that way on their first set of rolls, that's great. But I try to you know see what they've got. Okay, I see you've got a 13 here. You've got a couple of nines. You've got an 18. You've got a 17. And then I look at the other stats, and there's no really way to – explain it fully or properly but i kind of i don't take the best from the two sets of stats if it gets down to rolling two sets of stats uh but i try to say okay now if you take the 17 maybe we'll take this one and make this number a little lower and you can put it on whatever stat you want i i kind of have this just kind of mishmash of uh, you know this kind of system of my own of how i do that to get some uh get these players a playable character which I, which I think is important early on because sometimes, you know, gaming's tough and, and you want to have a good adventure and you don't want to be hampered by having these characters with all nines or eights or, you know, just crummy rolls unless that's what your campaign's all about. Yeah, I often do 3D6 and then place them wherever you want, but I've recently got a little bit softer and the last two campaigns I've started have been 4D6, drop the lowest. I'm getting soft in my old age. Uh, one thing I have uh, toyed with, and it's it's not quite as beneficial as 46 drop the lowest, and it uh, definitely does not have, it has a lot, of, it's a flat curve. So uh, it, it has a lot of middle results, 
more than highs and lows, but it's um, 1d12 plus 1d6. You just roll two dice, and that's your stat. And you end up with typically higher stats, but you're more likely to hit in that medium uh, than you would. You have a better chance at getting an 18 than you do on 3d6, but not quite as good as you do on a 3D, 4d6 drop the lowest. Hmm. Now, the only issue is it generates a two stat. I've never used that. I typically use 3d6, uh, just a straight 3d6. Um, and, and I think part of me, I just don't like dropping dice. It's the same reason for my hit point thing earlier. I don't like rerolling ones and twos. I don't <laughs> like rerolling dice or dropping dice. For some reason, it seems fake to me. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, I, I understand. It's, you know, it, it was never my favorite either, but... <laughs> It seems to make them happy. It seems like they get a little bit of benefit or something. And I, and I generally use that, you know, max uh, hit dice at first level. That's nothing new under the sun. And yeah. and I guess I don't have a hard set rule about re-rolling every one and two. Occasionally, if somebody just rolls really poorly when they're advancing to second level or fourth level or whatever the case may be, I, I might say maybe re-roll if it's a one. But, uh, you know, especially if somebody's playing a wizard or illusionist where you don't have many hit points to begin with. I think with new players, house rules can be really handy. My main group now, we started out and they had basically zero role-playing experience before. So they didn't even know what the dice were, anything like that. And for some reason, they struggled with initiative. I don't know if it was just the way I described it or if it was just dice overload or or whatever. Um, but we it kept slowing the game down and it was difficult for that group. So I switched it to just side initiative, like first edition. I rolled a D6 for the monsters. One of them rolls a D6 for the party. And we played like that. And with that group, we still do it that way because that's the way that they're used to. It works fine. Yeah, it's good to be able to change it to who you're playing with. And I do think it's important to present house rules up front. And that's something I definitely want to get in to this podcast as we're talking about house rules is how to present them because what you don't want to do is surprise them with your house rule, especially if it's not beneficial. You know, if it's something that uh, is a like if you say you're dead at zero hit points, that's the rule at this table. You need to let them know that before they hit that negative one hit point and go, okay, well, I'm unconscious. And you go, oh, no, at this table, that means you're dead. Oh, yikes. Uh, so you definitely want to have that conversation at the head of the game, not during the situation where it applies. And I think the best way to do that is to have a document. Print up house rules on a document that you provide to your players when you start that game. You know, that's a good idea. I, I, I agree with you definitely up front. Um, nobody likes that kind of surprise. I've never went as far as doing a document, but that that would be nice because... I think then everybody is for sure on board yes. when you start the game. Because the problem is, you know, uh, you have your spill when you start your game. You know, oh, well, thank you for joining my game. Here's how I run it. Here's my house rules. If you forget one, you know, and then you introduce it later, it, it, it doesn't feel as fair. It doesn't feel as legit. If it's on a document at the base front of the game, and you're like, here's the house rules we're playing by then everybody's on the same page. I typically don't house rule 
when I run at conventions, weirdly enough, because when I'm running at a convention, I think part of the conceit is that they're looking for that specific game. And so I should run that specific game uh, as close to rules as written as possible, um, especially because a lot of times I'll do historical delves, sort of like I'll run 70s D&D with 70s miniatures. And it's something I like to do at conventions. When I do that, the first time I did that, I house ruled the game and I was like, I feel like I'm robbing them of part of this experience. Part of this should be these rules are like this. And here are these supplies and here are these dice and here are these miniatures. And and that should all coalesce together. Um, so when I run a convention, a lot of times I won't house rule, but I think if you do house rule at a convention, having a document at the front of the game that you can hand out to each of your players is a very wise thing to do. I should have said that up front. I run a lot of convention games and I don't house rule them. I, I do try to run them as close to the book as I remember to. And I and I pretty much don't house rule all that much to begin with. Yeah, I, uh, character creation, I guess, is a big one. But then again, at conventions, I'm usually using pre-generated characters. But from my perspective, of course, many of these conventions, I'm also working at the booth. Uh, some people may not have played Castles and Crusades. Uh, I certainly, my passion for the game comes across, but I want them to have the experience of playing the game itself. I, I let them know, especially I try to gauge where they come from. Did you come from the, the 3.75 game or did you come from third edition or, or have you played it all? That way I can kind of get a sense of where they're at. And I let them kind of know up front, CNC is more like this as written. That, that way they kind of know. Uh, sometimes you may be uh, having a potential uh, customers or people who might want to uh, try out uh, Castles and Crusades and some of our other products. And I, I definitely, it's rules is written pretty much all the way uh, for me. And it generally is anyway. So I guess that's not much of an issue. But I, especially in that setting, I, I would definitely want people, if I was going to house rule a lot, uh, I would want people at a convention game or a store demo like that, especially if they're thinking about buying the game, to know here's what it is, here, here's how the rules are. But it is a game that if you don't like how this works, you can easily change it. And we encourage you to do so. That no, but that's such a good point because I mean, like we're all talking like we don't, we don't house rule at conventions, but there's not a game more house rule than castles and crusades. There just isn't. I mean, castles and crusades is the most house rulable version of fantasy role-playing that I've ever seen uh, because it's streamlined in a way that doesn't, you know, so so like when I say streamlined, when I see streamlined, I think, oh, I'm not going to be able to house rule that because most streamlined games are so internally reliant. This has to work this way for this to work this way for this to work that way. And if that if you move this over here, you break this over there because it's so streamlined. But um, uh, Castle Crusades is not like that. You can really mess with the levers and not break the game and not cause a lot of problems and not make one class unplayable or make one class very undesirable because you adjusted this class over here. Um, uh, so, you know, we're talking about playing it rules as written, but it's super house rulable. I think you would have to be careful if you were going to tinker with the classes too much. I'm not saying you couldn't do it. You certainly could. And I think it's doable. But I think if you were to tinker with just one or two classes too much, perhaps trying to beef them up. And while there may not be true character balance across the board, that may just be impossible to accomplish. 
I, I wouldn't want to get one or two classes too lopsided if somebody thought they were trying to improve a class. Uh, you know, I, I, I think maybe that could be a little more difficult if you're tr really trying to make radical changes to any of the character classes, if you go too far with that. But as you said earlier, I think almost anything else in particular, you know, other house rules, whether you want to add, you know, a dex modifier to a, uh, initiative throw i know that yeah. was a big thing for one of my buddies he said oh i want to add decks okay fine that's or if you want to add attacks of opportunity from the uh third fourth and fifth versions of the fantasy game and three well, so like, it's not gonna break things that, that's 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 one of the things i was thinking of is is skills and feats when they become baked into the system um make it hard to modify like you you have a harder time playing without them uh because they're so baked in and and c and c castle crusades has a skill system essentially which is the siege engine the primes and non-primes is essentially a skill system the way i kind of think of it um but it doesn't break the game or make the game unplayable uh to move around that and adjust it and you know people react to primes completely differently as we've talked about you know people uh, allow level bonus people don't allow level bonus when using something uh they allow um maybe a skill set if you have a prime strength as a wizard they may allow you certain things that other wizards wouldn't be able to do it really is this loose knit um almost like character concept uh, to provide you with this really rich play experience because it relies on uh, castle keeper adjudication. And when you rely on the adjudication of the person running the game, you will always have a richer experience than when you're relying on a bunch of uh, lists in the rule book. And I think it goes without saying, uh, I mentioned earlier the amazing adventures uh, rules that you could use and bring into your castles and crusades game. And people I have seen online that do that, but also... Uh, another book, and it goes without saying, I think, for our fan faithful of Castles and Crusades, but for those of you that may be new to the game and hearing us uh, for the first time or two, The Castle Keeper's Guide. Not the entire book, but a solid good chunk of that book is devoted to various optional rules, damage reduction, uh, just a million different things you could do, uh, various critical hits and critical fumble tables all sorts of things that we won't be able to uh, cover in just one single podcast. So if you're looking for that sort of thing, some of them may be the very obvious ones like the uh, 46 subtract the lowest one, but then some of them may not be as obvious to you. And the castle keepers guide, it has a great wealth of information for those wanting to house rule. Thanks everybody for joining us. To talk about house rules. Hopefully you liked some of ours. We liked hearing yours. Remember you can always call us at five, six, seven, four, zero, six. 3386 and leave a message and we'll play it on the podcast you can email us at the crusader podcast at gmail.com and check us out on facebook we'd love to hear from you some games may change but the castles and crusade siege engine remains the same
this will be Davis at the uh, front of this one. And, and I laughed during it, and he, he refused to do another take. <laughs> I was like, oh, no, I laughed. We got to retake that. He goes, nah. <laughs> that sums it up. It sums him up, though, so... <laughs> 